Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. If you have a taste for life, well, then I'm about to satisfy your cravings. Because on this show, I am dedicated to delicious dishes, and we're going way beyond mere eating and drinking. I'm on a mission to share the most exciting places, new experiences, emerging trends, and it's my goal to bring you the best interviews and insight and products into the wide world of food. So this is your culinary and lifestyle show, and I deliver deliciousness every weekend. If you happen to have missed show, don't worry. My podcasts are posted on iTunes and you can find a direct link at chefjamie.com where you will find an arsenal of recipes to fill every day with fabulous flavor. And I hope you'll follow my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. Now coming up, It's never too late for pie, right? The pie goddess, as I call her, pastry chef Erin McDowell, accomplished author, Food 52 host, New York Times baking contributor and baker extraordinaire, has released a new book. It's a masterclass and a masterpiece. It's called The Book on Pie. And wait till you hear her absolutely brilliant secrets. She's shared them all. So stay tuned. Erin McDowell coming up. Also, welcome to 2021. Oh, how the wine world has changed. Paul Callum Carrion at the helm of the oldest sustained mail order wine club in the U.S., Wine of the Month Club, having taken it over from his father, 92 years strong, in fact, is here to share some insight into the wonderful world of wine and how you can get your hands on some really brilliant bottles. So, Paul's coming up too. You wouldn't want to touch your dial now, would you? I like to kick off this show though with a technique, a method, um, an instruction, a tutorial of sorts to make you the best cook you know. It's my opportunity to share my passion and I'm always grateful that you listen 18 years strong on the radio and loving every minute of it. I have to say, uh, I still love cooking after all these years more than ever. And there is something about this cold weather, even here in SoCal where I live, you'd think it was snowing. I've dressed my son so warm. Uh, but truth is, it has me all this freezing cold weather thinking about roasting meats and making soup and rich, hearty dishes. And that list of goodness right there is the equivalent of what I think of as a warm hug on a blustery day. So one of my favorite winter dishes is these uh, tender, juicy pork chops that I brine, by the way, in uh, salt water with brown sugar and a little bit of vanilla, uh, maybe uh, some cloves or allspice. I like some cinnamon in there too. Vanilla, by the way, is a beautiful complement with pork in a brine. And I serve the pork chops with this rustic caramel applesauce. And to cook the pork chops, I use a classic pan searing technique called butter basting. And it delivers the flavor and the texture that I crave. Now, it doesn't work for a party full of people, which by the way, we're not back to dinner parties yet, but soon, right? But if you're having a party of people, you'd want to roast a whole pork loin, right? 
But this finesse method, if you're cooking for two or four, it delivers an unrivaled crust and a depth of flavor that is hard to match. Now, mind you, I am often cooking from for one and um, I essentially make love to the pork chop um, while butter basting and sipping on a vodka or a glass of Chardonnay. I happen to believe in butter basting and you're seeing it everywhere right now. In fact, chefs on social media are showing themselves spooning butter or butter basting in video and on social media form and in every page and everywhere I turn. It is a returning trend and it applies not only to pork chops, but it works very well for a filet mignon. Uh, It's very indulgent on a ribeye steak in a pan, preferably cast iron. Um, It's beautiful for lobster. So I thought it was time for a refresher. Okay, we know that color is flavor and butter is flavor, right? And I think everything is better with the three Bs. You've heard me say it before, butter, bacon, and beer. And butter basting a pork chop will make you a master chef. So it is hands down the most mouth-watering way to cook an individual or a few pieces of protein. If you want chicken breasts that are bursting with juice and golden crispy skin, maybe you have a thick salmon filet and you want it tender, medium, rare at its center. Well, the art of butter basting coaxes maximum flavor and texture out of whatever you're cooking. It is a great chef's trick. It's one of those chef's moves that I think will forever change the way you cook. You get brown butter, by the way, because uh, over the uh, cooking process and with the heat, of course, you're bathing in butter that is turning brown and it bathes the meat with flavor and it carries heat into every nook and crevice of the pork chop specifically in this instance. So how does one butter baste, you asked? Well, Once the meat has been seared, and in the case of a pork chop, I cook it three quarters of the way through, I add uh, butter to the pan, a a big chunk of it, by the way, and whatever aromatics you might like, like I'll throw in an unpeeled clove of garlic or a, a sturdy herb, like a couple sprigs of thyme or sage or even rosemary. And when the butter has melted and starts to foam, I tilt the pan so that it pools the butter itself at one end of the pan, which will help you spoon it up. And you use a long-handled spoon to quickly and repeatedly spoon up the foamy butter and pour it back over the meat. And the butter will eventually finish foaming and it gradually begins to brown. And you want to stop before the butter starts smoking, right? Because if it's black, you've gone too far. We want to keep that beurre noisette or that hazelnut aroma and flavor for brown butter. Now, you're going to want to start with a thick bone-in pork chop, in my opinion, at least an inch thick, um, because you can still cook them completely on top of the stove, but they have some, some girth to them, right? And as for which type of pan, most chefs will tell you it's cast iron. It's the way to go. You get a great sear. You get incredible heat conduction. If you don't have a cast iron pan, use the heaviest saute pan that you have. And with butter basting, this pork chop takes on the fragrance of the herbs and the nuttiness of the brown butter. And don't forget, please, when you're cooking pork, think pink. The chop does not have to be white all the way through. So once you have butter basted and you have this luscious, tender, beautiful pork chop, the most beautiful you've ever made, 
Uh, while the pork chops are cooking, I uh, cut up some apples and I add the slices to a large pan and I pour apple cider over them and I add a pinch of cinnamon and I slowly simmer them until the apples are tender. And then I cheat and add a spoonful of caramel sauce. Now I make sea salt caramel, but you could use store-bought caramel and you take the pot off the stove and you use an immersion blender and you now have roasted caramel applesauce, right? So easy, so good. Now I say Paris Syrah or a Pinot Noir for the perfect compliment. You can make the dish even more comforting, maybe a a winter salad of watercress and dried cranberries and toasted pecans and dinner's ready. Okay. I think I have to go shopping. That's what I'm having for dinner tonight now. Sounds so good, right? Please let me know how your butter-basted pork chops turn out. You can always email me, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. It's time for food news this week. Okay, this is news you can use, right? There are a lot of aspects of 2021 that will be different from 2020. Thank gosh. However, It is almost certain that some things are going to stay the same. And among them, it would seem, the continued onslaught of new Oreo flavors. That's right. Just when you thought you had gotten through January with great willpower, lean and clean, right? It appears that Nabisco's signature cookie is now available in two new flavors. Woohoo! Java chip and chocolate hazelnut. Now, for full disclosure, I have not tasted them. I received a press release, in fact, so that I could share this very valuable information with you, but I've yet to find them on the shelf, so if you do, let me know. Uh, But not just one, two distinct new flavors or varieties of Oreo cookies. The Java Chip Oreo, which is a coffee-flavored cream studded with chocolate chips and the traditional chocolate wafers on each side. And then there is the introduction of the chocolate hazelnut Oreo, which must be Nutella-inspired, of course. And so this proves that 2021 is off to a hot start for Oreo. And I say thank you, Oreo. And Oreo says, you're welcome, Jamie. Can't wait to taste. All right, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Grab a snack and come on back. There's lots more fabulous food right after this. Perfecting your palate every weekend, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. It's never too late for pie, right? If your holiday pies, maybe they were subpar, or you missed National Pie Day, this is your chance for redemption. And a stellar lesson, by the way, because pie can turn an ordinary afternoon into an extraordinary one. 
Pie is year-round, so says New York Times baking contributor, Food 52 host, and baker extraordinaire, Erin McDowell. She is the pastry chef everyone is buzzing about. She brings the magic of pie to kitchens everywhere through her award-winning food styling and videos. And like me, I'm sure you too are addicted to watching. Her book, The Book on Pie, is a masterclass, a masterpiece, a guidebook that came out just months ago, in fact. It's a love letter to pie. Uh, All of it rolled into one, and it's perfect for the novice and the expert baker alike. It will enlighten you to a lifetime of delicious creations, both savory and sweet. So we're talking pie. And I am so delighted that Erin is gracing this show. She is Erin Jean McDowell, and this is The Book on Pie. Erin, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Yes, of course. Uh, Congratulations. This really is a masterpiece. This is like a pie encyclopedia that you've written. I want to like carry it around under my arm. I feel like (laughs) if if it will seep in, I don't, you know, I don't know. Uh, But you are a rock star a goddess in the baking world. And I wonder, thank you. (laughs) No, it's true. How many pies do you think you actually made during the pandemic as it continues? Did you count? I can only imagine. Well, I know we were actually, I was working on the book in 2019. um, And, you know, we even photographed the book before, uh, before the pandemic hit, which was lucky because there was a lot of um, sharing spoons back then, (laughs) sharing slices of pie, which is something you know, that wasn't happening in 2020. But um, I know during the book, just in the 14 days that it took us to photograph the book, we wow. made 275 pies. Oh um, so last year when I was, you know, promoting the book and, and getting ready to launch it and everything, um, you know, I think it's pretty safe to say I don't bake a pie every single day, but most days that I bake pie, I bake five or six of them. Sure. So I think that you can probably say that there's at least 365, at least one <laughs> pie per day of the year yeah, which, happening in this house. <laughs> which, by the way, would make many consider your husband to be the luckiest man alive. There is a reason he married me, that's no. for sure. <laughs> no, there's lots of reasons. Um, and you share lots of reasons at the start of the book. I've read it to cover to cover. To cover. And, and by the way, really, I, I'm very enamored with it. Um, you share lots of you reasons will. at the beginning, five of them, if I'm not mistaken, about what yeah. you love about pie. And I thought yeah. it was a really wonderful <sighs> glimpse into your passion and how you see pie. And I'd love for you to just touch on that, to share it. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, um, I actually, I start the writing process of, of every book by writing the introduction because I think it's really um, such an opportunity for me as the author. You know, when you're a cookbook author, you, you get sort of only small amounts of space sometimes to, to let people into who you are because, you know, most of what you're writing, the 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 space on the page is very valuable and I want to make sure that I'm fitting in all of the method and all of the important things so that people are going to be successful. So, you know, the little tidbits I get are sometimes that introduction at the beginning of the book and the head note of the recipe where I can say a little bit about, you know, what, why I like this particular thing. And, and I just think it's so important for people to understand, um, you know, why I love pie because I really do love it very deeply. It feels like something that's in my in my veins a little bit, and um, and I learned to bake pie from my grandma, 
Uh, we started baking pies together when I was about 14 years old. Huh. And um, this actually was, my grandma and I were always very close, but when we started to bake together, it became a, a, a new shared thing that we had. Yes. Um, and she definitely encouraged me, maybe even just because she wanted me to, to, to take, take it and run with it a little bit, she really encouraged me to experiment. And so whether I realized it or not, I was learning to test recipes when I was about 14 and 15 years old in my grandma's kitchen. Wow. And, um, and that just kind of set the stage for what has become one of the only things that I can kind of make using my senses. And that's really what I wanted to offer with this book is that really pie can be so much more creative than people give it credit for. Uh, I think sometimes cakes and cookies get to have all the fun because people are decorating them and like doing all these crazy things. And I just really wanted to say pie is that way too. If it's oh. got a crust and a filling, it's a pie and the pie's abilities are truly endless. <laughs> yes, and <laughs> thank you. We love the pun. I have to tell you, the, the photos in the book that reflect your works of art are proof that the artistic uh, nature of who and what you are comes through, but that when you speak about that idea of experimenting, really letting your mind wander and being free with, with the idea of pie dough as the palette is amazing to me. I mean, these are glorious works of art. And uh, you share all of your secrets, which I personally am very grateful for. So um, let me ask you, share your holy grail pie dough secret, please. Because <laughs> I read word by word, your perfect flaky crust to me in your explanation is about the puff pastry folding method that I learned in culinary school, right? Yes. yes. So, you know, actually my standard pie dough recipe doesn't involve any folding, but what I, what I recommend, especially for people who consistently have trouble making pie dough, which of course is a lot of people out there um, that, that are coming to me and asking, what am I doing wrong? This folding method, um, which is something I also learned in pastry school, um, it, was, it was an instructor who was teaching us how to make puff pastry, but... He said very casually one day, and, you know, but you could also do it to biscuits or pie dough. You know, you, could, you can laminate whatever you want. And he just said it so offhand, but I had that moment. And lamination, which is that term used yes. for the folding, is so helpful with pie dough in particular because it increases the strength. It helps the butter distribute a little bit more evenly so that you have less risk of it melting out of the crust. And and that's really the hardest thing when you're dealing with an all-butter crust, which is the crust that tastes the very best. You have to fight that uphill butter battle. <laughs> that <laughs> shortening doesn't quite give you the same battle. It has a higher melting point. So the folding really just helps make it a little bit more foolproof and a little bit um, more doable for everyone. But the beautiful thing is in the book, we have um, five different mixing primary mixing methods. And yes. any of the doughs in the book can be made with any of those mixing methods. So if you're hoping to do decorative techniques like little cutouts on the edge, there's a way to mix your dough for that. If you're wanting it to be extra flaky and almost like a great base for a freeform pie, well, maybe you want to make it all the way into rough puff pastry. So there are lots of options and, and things to do. And um, that extra flaky method, I will say, is probably the most made in this house. Uh, and it will be in mine. And, and we will say your name every time. How is that? Um, <laughs> Love it. Okay, Erin, you have us all motivated to bake, and we must continue to dish, so please don't go away. Pastry chef Erin McDowell, the book on pie. More right after this. 
Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as we continue the culinary conversation with super uber talented Erin McDowell. Her new book, The Book on Pie, is a hit and a masterpiece. And so we continue learning her secrets. You often say in the book, uh, when in doubt, chill out, right? So that's one of the things I talk about very often, even when friends will call me around the holidays and say, you know, I'm... I'm making a pie. Now what? Right. And I always say uh, the best tip I can give you is to keep the dough cold. Right. So if you've worked with it too long, put it back in the fridge, pour yourself a glass of Chardonnay, you know, whatever it is. Uh, You talk about chilling out so much uh, to really hammer it home. It's so important. Right. Absolutely. Um, I just think that it's the it's the most go to advice. You know, if, if somebody comes to me with five different problems. Killing the dough longer is probably the answer to four of them. Really? Wow. It really benefits from being cold. And it comes Mm -hmm. down to, um, you know, during mixing, if the fat is too warm or the butter is too warm, you're just never going to achieve that flakiness because the fat isn't being incorporated in the right way. And then when it hits the heat of the oven, if the dough isn't cold enough, you know, all that work that you've put into it could basically just kind of melt out. So the thing about pie dough is it's actually, it's really not that difficult. It's only just a few ingredients, but it comes down to this muscle memory. And what I hear so often and why I'm so excited to be talking to you about pie today is because so often people come to me, you know, the day after Thanksgiving and they say, oh, it was okay, but, you know, it could have been better in this and this and this way. But then they don't make another pie until next year at Thanksgiving. And, you know, this is a, you're hearing it from, from obviously someone who wants you to make lots of pies for lots of reasons, but you're only going to get better at something if you try it several times and if you give yourself that advantage of that muscle memory. And I promise if you make two or three pies, you're going to be noticing that that third pie is so much better than the first. Hmm. It is practice makes perfect. You bake at a very high temp. You say 425, which surprised me. I understand the concept behind it. Of course, talking laminating and uh, and puff pastry and otherwise, you get a, a really beautiful uh, steam burst, essentially, right, from the high heat. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it, you do it across the board. I, I think that's fascinating and, and an extraordinary lesson. Well, it, it, and actually, not to... Not to... Uh, disagree with that statement, but there are some variances in temperature. Yes, of course. I think, we, of course. But I think I was going to say I think what you're referring to specifically is like my when I'm par baking and blind baking, which is what I'm always telling people what to do yes. when the pie crust is being baked by itself. Yes, it's 425, and and the reason for that is that um, that that steam burst that you're talking about that can only happen when the moisture inside the butter. Um, it basically evaporates in the heat of the oven. So the higher the heat is, the quicker that that happens, where Mm -hmm. it evaporates and creates the steam and enables those flaky layers. But the main reason I bring up that there is a slight variance of temperature is because I also always like to encourage people to know their oven. So I know that that's obviously a really difficult thing for people who aren't bakers, um, but... You know, for example, when I bake a double crust pie, I usually bake it at 400 degrees. And the reason is because they take much longer to bake. So if I bake it at 425, the top might get done before the bottom, that sort of thing. But I'll even say to people, it says in the recipe, you know, if it's starting to get brown enough, then go ahead and turn the oven temperature down even more. And if you know what the visual cue you're looking for, which is obviously a golden crust, and to see that filling bubbling through the vents, 
you can kind of just lower the temperature even to 350 and keep on going until you get there. And I promise that that pie is going to bake perfectly. So those visual cues and, like I said, getting that muscle memory, you know, I want I want people to have more of that freedom and flexibility in the kitchen, especially when it comes to pie, because it's something that can change so much if your oven is five degrees hotter than mine is. Sure. Um, so, so those visual cues are so helpful in particular, and that's what I really try to write a lot in there. Yes, and, and we are ever learning from you. Um, just for the record, I can't wait to make your cornmeal pie dough. And oh, thank you. Oh, cereal treat one. crust, too. But let's talk dough scraps. I love this. Okay, waste <laughs> not, want not. You Absolutely. make everything from a dough scrap. It's genius. <laughs> I just, you know, you put all that hard work into that dough. So if it just because it's scrap doesn't mean it shouldn't get to have its day. So sometimes I make... Um, little, I just roll it out and, and sugar it and, um, you know, chop it into little squares. And in pastry school, we had a chef who called those Scooby snacks. You know, <laughs> she was just like, you know, just eat the, the crunchy pie crust with the sugared. Um, and, you know, one of my favorite ones from the book is you can take scraps of dough and chop it up and bake it separately. And I call it pie crust streusel. Yes. And you put it over the finished pie for more crunch and especially... I always like that for pies like pumpkin or pecan that aren't double crust because I'm a crust lover. So you can always top it with some whipped cream and a couple of those extra crust crumbles because if people like crust like me, mm. you know, sometimes you're wishing it had a top crust. Um, but another really fun one is sometimes I bake a little scrap just for myself. I'll top it maybe with some sesame seeds or some Parmesan. And when it comes out of the oven, I mash my avocado onto it. It's like avocado toast, but pieified, and it's delicious. Yes, and you do have a love for avocado. There are lots of, there are a few, I should say, avocado lovely things in the book. This is not just sweet pies, albeit you will master sweet pie if you read from cover to cover. But the avocado galette on um, your uh, rough, is that rough puff pastry? It is. It's actually, in the book, it's on the pumpernickel pie dough. Yes. Um, which is made as puff pastry. So it, it actually, it looks, you know, sort of like a giant avocado toast on a pumpernickel bread. And um, It looks amazing. And, you know, thank you. Yeah, there's a whole chapter of savory because I love savory pies. They're, I would actually, I don't tell the sweet pies that I said this, but, you know, that's what I'm eating the most often probably is, I love making quiche. I love making chicken pot pie, hmm. things of that nature. Sure. So um, I, I wasn't going to let this book go by without a, a savory chapter. And I also really wanted to think about things you wouldn't necessarily think of as a pie ingredient, like avocado hmm. or um, in the cold set pie chapter, I have a watermelon pie. Because yes. That isn't normally, uh, you know, I really <laughs> wanted to challenge myself and also hmm. present it in a way that hopefully other people reading it will say, oh, well, then I could make a pie out of, of, you know, whatever I've got, because, of course, you can't. If it's got a crust and a filling, it's a pie. And, you know, I only have access to so many fruits where I live. So I always am hearing from people around the world saying, I have Marion berries. You don't have a Marion berry pie. Or I have this, and you don't have that. So it's a way, I think, also to spark that creativity and get people Mm. thinking about ways that they can use what's available to them. Yes, and you're paying it forward from when your grandmother encouraged you to experiment. You have done the same for so many to create Uh, a signature pie, and and that's very beautiful to me. Tell us about um, the classic apple, the the mascarpone. Those two would be, I would say, uh, 
the the two I will attempt and make first from the book on pie. I think the the mascarpone is a really fun one to talk about in particular because the idea with that one is that the flavor of it, it's a custard pie. Um, I just think that the mascarpone cheese is mm. su- such a delicate but also beautiful flavor yes. that goes so well, I think, with just about any fruit that you can think of. So mm. that pie, um, we shot the book in the fall. So in the book, the photograph, it's decorated with some fall fruit, some apples and pears and figs. Yeah, it's and beautiful. Things that I beautiful. Thank you. But the idea is that you could also decorate that with whatever's in season. So if I were to make that pie right now, I might decorate it with segments of citrus. Mm. Um, If I were to make it in the summer, I might saute some rhubarb to put on the top. In Mm. the spring, I mean, in the summer, you could decorate it with fresh berries or peaches. Erin McDowell is the author, recipe developer, award-winning food stylist, uh, who you know her previous books, The Fearless Baker, named one of the best baking books by the New York Times. Um, but of course, it's her videos on Food 52 and her con- contributions to the New York Times cooking section and Pure Wow um, that we uh, know her and love her from. And you can catch her weekly hosting baking classes on Food Network Kitchen. Uh, and the Bake It Up a Notch for Food 52 series. And you can check out all her videos, of course. It's Erin Jean McDowell, J-E-A-N-N-E in the middle. Just search Erin McDowell Pie, and trust me, um, a whole world will be opened up for you. But please, get this book. It is everything you need to know to bake perfect pies. It is a lifetime of knowledge between two hard covers with so many pages in between. You will have reading for weeks and you will thank me for it because it is never too late for pie. The book is called The Book on Pie and the author, Erin Jean McDowell. It was such a privilege to have you here, Erin. Thank you. I, I thank hope you you'll so come back. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Oh, anytime. You gave me goosebumps with that. Thank you so much. Anytime. Even if you don't want to talk about pie, I'm, I'm coming anytime you'll have me. Okay, well-deserved. <laughs> we can talk about anything you like, no doubt. Uh, we do have the best culinary thinkers on this show. I'm telling you, this is a rock star goddess baker, and you don't want to miss the book on pie. There is lots more fabulous food in your radio. Really? Like, it could get any better? Right after this. Don't go away. And welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Raise a glass because we're toasting today with Paul Kalamkarian, and I am so thirsty for it. You see, Paul is the second generation president and owner of the original Wine of the Month Club, having taken over the business from his dad, Paul Sr., who still enjoys a great glass of wine at age 92. Paul has tasted upwards of 100 thousand wines, you heard me right, making him a true expert. And his podcast, Wine Talks, shares insight into the wonderful world of wine. 
I've always appreciated his deeply rooted love for the grape, and he does believe that wine is one of the only creations in the world that can represent a region and say, this is who we are, and I agree. Paul is here to share his ideas today, his trend-setting opinions for what wine looks like in 2021. And I'm very glad to welcome you back to the show, Paul. I hope you're healthy and safe and that you've been drinking a lot. (laughs) Always an honor and pleasure to be on the show. Well, thank you. And uh, just again, thanks for having me. Yes, of course. How much have you tasted during the pandemic, by the way? We do have, you know, in the industry, we do have that excuse. It's research and development, right? But have you... Have you upped the pace, I wonder? Well, so, you know, it's always like somebody's got to do it, right? Well, so, of course. I actually set a record last Tuesday. Now, I, this is my 31st year of tasting wine every Tuesday unless I'm sick or out of town. Right. And I tasted 131 wines last Tuesday from 9 a.m. to about 4. Wow. My record to that point had been 100, and my record off campus is 162. But that's exactly the point, is that COVID has has unfortunately for restaurants since they're not buying anything right now right so that changed today in los angeles uh, the vendors of wine are looking for places to sell i mean there's just there's no place to go okay so wait let's talk about that i mean 2021 is hopefully bringing some new hope 2020 we can move on thank you um but let's talk about wine offerings at restaurants i mean here in california where you and i live um they recently lifted the stay at home order we're starting to see a little bit more outdoor dining but it has been a lot of months like you said of zero vendor relations that's what's going to happen and let's not be mistaken it's going to take some time uh, it's very expensive to reopen a restaurant, as you know. Of it's course. kind of like opening a restaurant. Uh-huh. Uh, you got to bring the staff back. You got to bring the equipment back. You got to bring food in, and so wine's not going to be the priority of of the expense. So hmm. for those wine sellers that we're used to curating or having fun with at a restaurant, they're going to take a little while to come back. And the wineries that used to rely on restaurant business, sometimes in the tune of eighty percent, are looking for avenues outside of the on-premise sale and they're coming to us and Mm. that is why online sales of wine have skyrocketed through covid and by the way 2021 is not backing off now you just mentioned yes the the brands the names the wineries the winemakers that we know and love are more accessible than ever unfortunately due to the pandemic because of the situation of restaurants Um, and there are some glorious wines that you can fill your cellar with now um, through Wine of the Month Club, which is you, and, and lots of other places, direct yeah. from a winery and so on. But not everything with a name is good. Like, I would, love to, I would love to know, and your opinion, why Snoop Dogg makes wine. You know, you're, just gonna, you're really going to irritate me here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, That's why we're uh, friends. Wait a second. You know, it's, uh, and I've been through this business too long, and too many celebrity wines, and there are some legitimate celebrity wines, like Greg Norman's brand. Mm-hmm. Greg Norman's brand, he actually has a facility, actually makes the wine, he actually tastes the blends. But I'd far-fetched to think that Snoop Dogg is sitting home blending uh, juice. <laughs> and poor Snoop Dogg, though, I mean, since you brought him up, he was front and center only weeks ago at the local market, which means, you know, that position was purchased. And I want consumers to know that it's just like toothpaste and shaving cream and salad dressing the best spot on the shelf is bought. Mm-hmm. So here's Snoop Dogg, whoever vends the wine, buys that position thinking that Cali Red 
was going to fly off the shelf, and only two weeks later it was on the bottom shelf, which is a death to a brand. Paul Kalamkarian Jr., his search for wine club selections never ends. It's almost like having a personal sommelier. And I will tell you, having Paul as a friend is pretty fabulous. So learn more at wineofthemonthclub.com and stay tuned because Paul Karamkarian is going to keep us up to date in 2021 on the state of the wine world. And we will continue to toast with you, Paul. So thank you. Thank you again. Appreciate it. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. Well, at least I hope you thought so. Cheers to sipping and savoring fine wine and definitely to pie. I hope that you'll tune in every weekend when I share gastronomic inspiration. But before you go, let me leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. If you know me, you know I love a super simple recipe. And since it is so bone-chillingly cold lately, I do love making soups. And this two-ingredient butternut squash soup will amaze you. It is the easiest butternut squash soup you will ever make. And it turns out that this creamy, beautifully rich soup is entirely vegan. So you need some cubed butternut squash, which you can conveniently buy in a bag now at your favorite grocery store. Mine is Ralph's, by the way. And then you need a can of coconut milk, some water from the faucet, and some spices from your cabinet. It's just that easy. The secret is in roasting the squash cubes until they're caramelized and tender. Then I dump them into a soup pot and add the coconut milk, the water, and some aromatics, maybe a pinch of cayenne, a little bit of nutmeg, maybe some baking spices like cinnamon or ginger. And I simmer it for about 15 or 20 minutes for all the flavors to meld. Then you process it or blend it until really smooth. Run your appliance longer than you think because you will get lovely viscosity or texture from this soup. And then, of course, season well with salt and pepper along the way and sit and soak up the beautiful steam that comes off a piping hot cup of two-ingredient butternut squash coconut soup. I'll post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, and I hope that you'll follow and share your best dishes. And I will meet you here next weekend when I promise lots more fabulous food in your radio. Again, thank you for listening. Please stay healthy and safe and wear a mask. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. Well,